Hello and welcome to the How The Fuck podcast, where you can learn marketing from the experiences of marketing leaders. If you don't already, come and follow me on LinkedIn, where I post daily about what I learned from these interviews. And for those of you who don't already know, every podcast has a corresponding insight summary at thefuck.com. So if you want a quick read of the most important points, just head over there and, uh, and subscribe while you're at it to our weekly email. This week on the podcast, we have an incredibly talented marketer, Ian Luck. He's the VP of Marketing at Customer Gauge, and since he's been there, they've created a category, 2x in revenue, and made a real impact in the space. We talked about a lot of things, but mostly the ins and outs of a key driver of their growth over the past two years. One extensive research report that earned 30,000 downloads and made 2 million in annual recurring revenue. We go into everything you need to know to do something similar yourself, including what to avoid so that your time is well spent. I hope you enjoy it. Hey, Ian. So just to start, please, can you give me your one minute pitch for Customer Gauge? So Customer Gauge is a B2B account experience software. We help companies reduce churn, but more importantly, we we help companies identify the right people in the accounts that they want to grow and give them kind of the the tactics and the, the information they need to grow those accounts faster. So the core of it, we're collecting customer feedback from multiple different levels of that organization. And we basically set up like personalized dashboards for a bunch of different levels of the org. We call it account experience because it's not just getting one piece of feedback from one customer. It's literally we're serving C-level CEO, we're serving middle management, we're serving the front line. And our special sauce is getting the information that's relevant to the people, every one of those levels and uh, making it actionable so you can stop churn before it happens, but more importantly, grow those accounts faster than any other software out there. So that's really what we pride ourselves on okay so where do you get that data from is it mps surveys that are already existing or is it customer support data so we do a bunch of different things so our core offering is surveys we all are also pretty robust in text surveys so we have a couple clients that are using like hundreds of thousands of text surveys per year we also have this thing called account vitals which is basically we grab everything so we're the hub for your experience data in one spot and we show it over like almost like a journey map where support tickets website visits reviews you name it nps surveys anything you can imagine you basically put into this data algorithm and it shows it visually across a time frame but also kind of gives you an indicators on this account at risk of churn based off of these four things or whatever it is. So yeah, it's surveys for sure, but we do, we grab everything. I think that's the the real secret sauce. So you mentioned account experience there. So it's my understanding that you created this category, account experience, you've got the trademark. So what do you define it as? What is account experience? What was your process behind thinking, okay, we actually need to create our own category here? We talk to a ton of prospects. We talk to a ton of clients, obviously every week, every day. One of the main themes that kept reoccurring from the prospect side is that there's there's big problems on B2B when it comes to managing experiences, especially in more traditional industries that customer success hasn't quite tapped into yet. And they have different needs, right? So like customer success is pretty heavily focused on like usage, product usage, product desk, CSM, onboarding, all of that good stuff, which is still quasi relevant. But a lot of these traditional industries like manufacturing, IT services, they don't have usage stats really. It's more about relationships, right? So we identified a need in the marketplace that wasn't really getting fulfilled properly. And what we did was we basically just started figuring out what the major pieces that were missing in the CS landscape or the CX landscape and and crafting a software solution around that. And one of the big pieces that I think you and I will probably cover today is research. We did a ton of like market research and that seems weird for a software company and it is, but it it was super valuable 
because we figured out what the problems are and we they basically had a hypothesis when we went in and that research kind of confirmed that hypothesis that yeah there's problems here started forming forming this product around this problem for these specific industries again more traditional focused industries we are going into more SaaS now but the main driver of this category creation was was fulfilling those needs that weren't being met by the market currently um, account experience is I think different than CS it's not usage focused though we do that it's it's much more focused on relationships so again multi different levels of it's like you could plug in all of your feedback from all of these different levels of the account and you're getting a full view of sentiment you're getting churn notifications you're getting nps scores you're getting comments text analytics it's like everything that all of these other disparate industries are doing we just kind of all into one spot for these traditional industry industries to better manage these relationships okay so you couldn't see yourself falling into any traditional categories so you had to create one what have you seen the benefits from that? What have been the upsides and downsides from being the category creator? Yeah, great question. So downsides definitely is that nobody knows about the category. You have to kind of educate the market. It's really establishing the problem first and foremost. I think, again, focusing on the problem and really just hunting in on what's not working and providing education around that. So if you go to our website, we are very heavy on thought leadership, very heavy on educational content. In fact, we're launching a new customer gauge academy this week where we're breaking up, you know, one of our certification courses, that's like over 12 hours of content. We're doing multiple different courses now. We've combined all of our knowledge into this, this academy. So it's really the big hurdle is education, I think, but worth it. So we've definitely seen some, I mean, we've 2X since we've launched this account experience category. We've had competitors jump on the bandwagon, which is great to see. We've obviously closed more business. Our messaging is focused. So we're not necessarily i still feel like cs customer success is very SaaS focused and experience opens it up to a little bit broader of an audience that is not focused on usage yeah so i think the benefits are definitely there obviously our investors love it when you create a category it is a good precedent of these companies growing faster but i think you can really only be successful in creating that category if the need is actually there which I, we definitely think that there is something behind account experience so there must be great to be known as the people who created the category, right? It must set you instantly as the leader, if, especially if others start following and start adding to that category themselves. Yeah, exactly. And we're in the process of working with Gartner, with Forrester, with G2 Crowd to, to bring recognition to that category. We've had a couple of talks about that with, with all of those guys. So we're, we're hoping to make it a bigger thing in 2020 and beyond. Uh, and that's the real struggle, right? And if I'm being completely honest, we think it's here. We know it's here. Our customers are saying, yep, you guys are right. But it takes a little bit of time for the market to, to come to that realization as well. And that's really the struggle with the category creation piece is getting everybody else on board. And like the biggest misconception is you don't want anybody else talking about it. Like we, we trademarked account experience, right? So you, do, you don't want anybody else using that. You don't want anybody else talking about it in their collateral. And that's just not true. You want more people using it, more people talking about it. You want competitors to identify as account experience because then it legitimizes the, the category, mm -hmm. which we all know through like drift and conversational marketing is actually the category creator for customer success. Mm -hmm. There is precedent in our actual market overall for this. We just don't think the customer success piece is really covering everything anymore. Definitely. So you said you trademarked it, but how does that also allow people to use it? Yeah. So there's a similar thing set up with uh, companies. So they, they own the trademark for Net Promoter. I don't know if uh, a lot of mm -hmm. people out there know that. It's actually half owned by Bain & Company and Satmetrics, which is an older software company. They were bought out by Nice. I think it's an Israeli company a, a while back, but they own the 
trademark for Net Promoter Score. So anybody that says NPS anywhere needs to basically register it. So they do a little trademark R uh, above it. And if you don't, you get called out by Ben. And that, that's definitely something we've experienced over the couple past couple of years is we were we were a pretty big, before I showed up, we were a pretty big NPS shop. That's what we were. We were NPS software. Um, and our evolution, if I can just kind of rant on this for a sec, our evolution was we were an NPS company and we weren't growing as fast as we wanted to, right? So when I showed up and we had this other member of the executive team, Yearn, and our CEO, Adam, we came up with this concept called monetized net promoter, which is like, all right, this is where the current market is net promoter. Monetized net promoters, customer gauges that bridge to get from point A to point B. Monetized net promoter was basically just saying net promoter is not really good enough. You need to tie net promoter with revenue and ROI, and that gets you monetized net promoter. And so we actually started building our software around that. And that was our first attempt at category creation. I think it, it worked really well, but it wasn't big enough. We found that just the, the net promoter market wasn't big enough. It wasn't enough of a market to really sink our teeth into. So we brought into the experience market, but then basically just pegged, pegged B2B experience as a, a huge opportunity. And so not CS, not customer success, but B2B experience and really focused on that revenue tie to the experience metrics, I think is really at the heart of account experiences, tying those B2B experience metrics to revenue. And that's kind of how we stumbled upon so that all happened since you arrived. Nice. It's interesting. I mean, I still remember the day it happened. It just randomly came to me and I, and I slacked the CEO and he said he's in, uh, he's in Holland, right? So he's based out of Amsterdam. So he was riding his bike home and he said he almost fell off his bike when he heard the, the phrase because I, I did like account experience, you know, customer success isn't good enough. You need blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And I think it works well because I think it makes sense straight away. Okay, so you've been at Customer Gauge for four and a half years now. What would you say is your proudest moment or your favorite marketing result? So we can jump in that and segue into the meat of the interview. Yeah, I would say the proudest marketing result was probably the campaign we ran with the research. We had a big research report that was co-branded with Salesforce, Microsoft, Vodafone, Colliers, Affirm, HP, that basically before, but it's like 30,000 organic downloads which without PPCs help, and then yeah. closed a ton of business from it and some really big names. So that was probably the most impactful campaign I've run, maybe in my marketing career. Mm -hmm. I'll have to check that, but it's, it's pretty, from one piece of content, it was it was pretty impactful not only you know the marketers in-house but the the business itself it still drives business for us today which is mm -hmm. around a year and a half old so that's that's pretty crazy usually our content if we launch an ebook it's about a six month uh, shelf life and this thing is still kicking a year and a half in so it's interesting wow so what was that piece of content yeah, it was the Customer Gauge, NPS, and CX Benchmarks report. So it was a industry-wide report we ran in conjunction or in partnership with MIT. And we did just a ton of research collection, about 35 or 40 questions. And then we did analysis on the back end and did kind of a uh, state of the market. This is what we're seeing. This is maybe where we're falling short. And this is kind of what we should be focusing on as best practices in the NPS and CX marketplace. And this report is really what drove the realization that the market's being underserved. There's a lot of confusion. So that was the other piece is like, even with all of these companies in the space of CX and customer success, I think one of the stats we have is like three out of five programs still fail because people aren't focused on the right things. There's this thing called the disconnect where the priorities of the C-level or the CEO is revenue growth, revenue growth, revenue growth. The priorities of the CX manager is creating a remarkable experience and making sure that issues are triaged, right? So there's a little bit, we call that a disconnect because these programs are failing because these CX people or practitioners are going to the CEO and saying, hey, you know, we have great experience. Look at our NPS score and the CEO 
predictably says, so what? And that happens over and over and over again. And even in customer success, that is a thing. Mm -hmm. More so in customer success, I think, because they're innately tied to one department. There is a customer success department. So that is a traditional silo that's created when you get these customer success programs and teams. That data is really hard to get out of that silo. The account experience thing is just, it's not just for this over here in the CS silo. It is marketing. You have a dashboard, you have access to data, you have like things you need to do to keep accounts in good standing and grow Mm -hmm. them. The experience team, sales, for sure sales. That's a big part of our thing is like, we help you get more revenue out of your accounts. So we provide that data right to sales. I mean, you have to. That's how you upsell these accounts. You get referrals, you get cross-sells, upsells. But again, going back to the, the original point, that disconnect is resolved when you say, all right, you're the CX leader, lead with revenue. Show how much your program has produced in revenue terms to the CEO. That is the first thing you say to that CEO is, hey, this program this month has generated an extra you know, $100,000 in upsell revenue that we wouldn't have got without the program. Oh, and by the way, our NPS score is 30 and went up from 22. And by the way, these are some of the comments that some of our customers have said. It's a much different conversation. Right. So the report you created focused on those gaps and changes that you think needed to needed to change, right? Okay. So like, I have a few questions on that. I mean, firstly, how do you make a piece of content like that that's so extensive uh, and make sure it doesn't come across like one big sales pitch? Do you know what I mean? So we approached it from a value first standpoint. So if you download the report, there's never a mention of the product. There's never a mention of this research tying to our product. We simply state this is what you should focus on as a result of the research, right? So you should focus on tying revenue to your experience program. You should focus on upsell, cross-sell referrals. You should focus on communicating to the CEO with revenue first. But we never say, and you can do that with customer gauge. That that, that never works. Think of it like LinkedIn, right? The, the common knowledge right now on LinkedIn is don't ever try to sell your product or service on LinkedIn. It's not a sales channel. It is a awareness channel. So you want to provide value. That's nothing in return. In fact, some of the most popular people on LinkedIn are the people that are just giving away their secrets. They're giving away all of their best thoughts, strategies, tactics. These are the people that are blowing up. The Chris Walkers of the world, Dave Gearhearts, the Ben Goodies. You know what I mean? It's literally giving it away for free. Same concept in that cornerstone piece of content for us is, you know, give value. And if you look at the report, it's massive. It's 80 pages. And I know everybody's thinking, wow, 80 pages. Does anybody read that? I can tell you that it's a fallacy. Definitely people read it. If it's valuable enough, if the information is relevant to them, people will read it. And I've had, I can't tell you how many people reach out to myself and the marketing team and just say, this this page on page 65, this chart right here was amazing. So you know, they're they're deep into it, right? I think it's really just adding value. How long did you spend on the, the research and the writing report? Yeah, so we spent about, I think, three or four months in research phase where we would, we set up the survey with uh, customer gauge, believe it or not, and sent it out to our email base, sent it out on social. We had sales reaching out with the link to take the survey. So this is another really cool piece that I think a lot of companies underestimate is use it as a prospecting tool. Mm-hmm. So what I mean by that is when your salespeople are trying to prospect new accounts or new personas and they need something to send them, don't lead with an ebook. Say, hey, we're doing this survey and it's really relevant to you specifically in this industry we're trying to collect information around what's working what's not working in programs i love it if you take 10 minutes and fill this out and then you get three exclusive things if you do 
maybe early access to the report. Maybe it's like access to something else. We did an assessment. So they took that survey. We would spit out a custom assessment that says, these are your answers. This is how everybody else answered. These are your benchmarks compared to those other people. These are our recommendations. Sorry, they would get that instantly, would they? Yep, instantly. Yep, set up on the back end. So that was really cool because there's a lot of reciprocity there. And that's a big piece of it too, right? Is like, you can't ask somebody to take 10 or 15 minutes out of their day and just say, it's all for me. You have to kind of give value back. So that's an important piece to anybody listening. Don't just ask somebody to do something and, and don't give them anything in return or a good reason to do it. So that assessment takes care of that. But yeah, it does the outreach on the sales side does two things. It creates awareness of you and your company and the research. But then number two, if they say no or they don't respond, you can kick back to that same contact in three months time when the report's done. Say, hey, I know you didn't take the survey, but here's the results. I thought you'd be curious to have that awareness from the previous conversation. And that, that was really effective for us to yeah. drive in. Yeah. That's cool. And and did it help a lot having, you said you had MIT and is it Salesforce co-sponsoring report with you to that? Yeah, a ton, as you can imagine. So we were a smaller company and we were up against some pretty big competitors. One of them got bought out for over a billion dollars with a B. So my levers are, in my opinion, brand and tapping into like other brands. So raising our profile from a brand standpoint. And one way you can do that very easily, get other companies that have larger audiences um, involved in your, and I think the hardest part, and I'll, I'll be honest with you, man, the hardest part is getting that first one to sign up because once you get, for example, Salesforce to sign up, it's easy. You just basically say, hey, Microsoft, Salesforce over here is about to do this with us. I think it's really important you do it with us as well, you know, blah, 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 blah. But how do you get that first one, right? That's yeah. the tricky part. So we kind of did something a little sneaky, and I will say this out loud. We basically say we're in talks with Microsoft, blah, 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 to get involved in this report, which is technically true, but you're basically, you know, this is legit, but it also helps if you have something else to show them that's quality, right? So their biggest fear is they're going to attach their name to some fly-by-night brand that produces some shit piece of content. So you kind of have to alleviate those fears right off, right off the bat. So give them your highest quality, super branded piece of content. Again, one of our levers is brands to go against our competitors because we need to look and feel like we're that billion-dollar company. So I invested a ton in brands. We did the website. We did our collateral. Look and feel. Hired a graphic designer in-house. So that's important to us. So we had a good amount of content to pull from. So take your best piece of content that really represents your brand well from a look and feel standpoint and say, this is what you can expect. And that goes a long way too. And basically saying, all right, we're talking to Microsoft. You guys are going to miss out. You're going to miss the boat if you don't get on this thing. It's mm-hmm. going to rock it. We're going to have, and it's easier for us now because I can say this report last year got 30,000 downloads. But if you don't have that, I would really rely on brand talks and say, this is kind of like the look and feel of what it will look like. And we can expect, you know, 10,000 downloads or whatever it is. You should have a good idea for how content will do. If you're at the head of a marketing department, you should have a pretty good gauge on if we release this at this month, you know, our conversion rate should be that if we hit this many impressions on our email base, we should get this many conversions. So. Cool. And do you ask them in advance to promote it, to promote the content? Yeah. So we actually do a lot of that work for them. We created a bunch of social images for them. We created email headers. We created all of the possible collateral they would need to do that. We created it for them in their brand. So again, that's that's a really cool thing to do. That's like a pro move where you literally just say, here's everything you'd ever need to promote this. Don't ever even think about spending cycles or your team cycles to do this. We'll do it all for you. And they'll be much more, much more likely to use it and promote it. So I think that's somewhat common knowledge, but yeah, I would say go, go above and beyond there. Give them everything they'd ever need to promote that thing because they will 
promote it. And again, your goal as that smaller company, that smaller startup that's trying to punch above their level is to get that other company that's bigger than you, that has a much bigger audience to promote it. And that, that is an easy way to kind of reduce that barrier for them. So that's super important. Definitely. I think I've experienced that firsthand with this, with the podcast itself because yeah. like the more high profile the person you get on of course they share it with their audience exactly it's like one like from chris walker kind of brought in loads of new followers i know it's crazy isn't it especially on linkedin right now i feel like the organic juice is just unheard of on that platform right now definitely and i, I guess more and more people are going to notice but it's not actually that easy to to continuously add value on there. So I don't think, uh, hopefully there's some barrier too. I think so. I was actually talking to somebody else about this recently. LinkedIn specifically, I think the people that are doing well on LinkedIn were doing it five years ago with the playbook that's very common knowledge now, but wasn't back then. Your hearts, the Jason Lemkins, these guys were all the OGs of this thing, adding value, adding insights for free. What you're seeing now, hundreds of thousands of other marketers doing the same playbooks and the same things every day from an echo chamber. Not to say you can't stand out in the crowd if you have something interesting to say, like Chris Walker, for example, is raging, raging against the machine. That's why I think he's standing out. He's saying, you guys are all doing this wrong and doing this wrong. That works pretty well. But there's it's, it's rare that you get somebody that's just regurgitating the same generic marketing stuff that's going to rise above it. You have to have something interesting or, or kind of to say about, about things. And I think LinkedIn will slowly start to reduce their organic reach just like any other social companies. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out in the next five years. Yeah, well, definitely. I like that kind of raging against the machine idea. You're never going to cut through if it's not unique. And I definitely have seen like an uptick of people saying what, you know, Chris said a few months back or, or yeah. just mimicking exactly what they do. So it's a, it's a good point there, just to stay unique and come up with your own point of view. Or I, I like it when people share their own actual experience because you can't exactly copy that. I do too. And I think that's actually the most valuable stuff. Uh, like I said, it's kind of an echo chamber at this point. I, I mean, I hate the posts that are like, no, number one thing you need to do is add value. And I know I just said that, so don't, but it's like every post, every day I see a post about add value, value, value. Every day I see a post about, you know, the most important thing you can do is copywriting as a marketer. Like how many times do we see that a day at this yeah. point? How possibly be a sustainable strategy. Unless you have, I think you nailed it, Ben. It's like, give me a unique experience that you've done or accomplished and give me like the data. I think that's what you're trying to do with this podcast. That's what I'm trying to do with mine is like, get into the tactical details. Like how, what are you actually doing? Because I think if you press these guys and gals out there, a lot of them will talk a good game, but when it comes down to it, I mean, we can't all be the best marketers in, in the world. Everybody's saying that they're, they have the, the key or like everybody's like the best marketer. I actually have a post lined up about that, but it's kind of like <laughs> I've been holding back, but yeah. Yeah, it's true. What were we talking about just before? Oh yeah, we talked about Chris a, a little bit as well. Remind me because... He obviously is a big kind of proponent of ungated content. And I looked at your website and your ebook and I saw some of them are gated. So what's your view on that? Yeah. So if you look at our website, we do half and half almost. So I don't think, listen, I know why he's saying it. I get, I get what he's going at. I think it's easier to say that stuff when you're on the agency side and you're contracting with these other companies that somebody else is under the gun for that number, right? I think it's easy to say, ungate everything and they'll come to you. And I think that's a tougher sell when you're at the business level. Um, and he's right that you need to go to the business level and, and lead with revenue, but it's tough to turn the ship around when your entire funnel is baked around these metrics, right? Not to say it's not possible, but what you need to do, in my opinion, is kind of slowly do it. And what I mean by that is like some of the most valuable content we have is still gated. It's behind a 10 question form. And I know I'll probably get roasted for that, but it's so valuable that my conversion rate, conversion rate on that page is like 60%. Mm -hmm. So like that tells me that people are 
really excited to get this content and that it's valuable to them on the surface level before they even read it, that 60% of the people that hit the page will convert. That's good. Some of the other pieces of content are not that good. So we don't get case studies. In fact, we, we're doing a drift conversational content. So for case studies and videos and some of the other lower tier eBooks, we're doing ungated, but drift conversational content, which literally is just the book hosted on a page with a bot or a chat bot on the right side. I had a post recently where I've I talked about the results of that. So I'll give you some data. Before we did conversational content, we were just giving away the PDF for free without a gate, lower level content. We would generate about one demo per book on those types of campaigns when we would send an email to that. At the very end, we would have a demo request link at the bottom of the ebook, not in the report, by the way, but other pieces of content we would. Mm -hmm. That would generate about one demo per per campaign we ran. We added in Drift conversational content. We did two tests, one of them with like a direct book to calendar, the other one with a direct chat to the BDRs. Uh, and we generated 12 meetings from that similar sized campaign. So I think there's something to be said about ungating content and allowing people to engage with your company on their terms, which is kind of Drift conversational content. You're not pushing them to submit a form, giving them, giving them access to the content. And if they want to reach out, they will. I think that what that really told me is that I'm not supplying my prospects with enough outlets to reach out to me. Ease of use type of standpoint. It's not easy for them to reach out. If I just made it easier with conversational content, you would. We got 12 demos as opposed to one. So to answer your original question, I think it's. It, I think it depends. I don't think the move is to give it all ungated. I know companies do that. I know that's the, the hot thing. I'm also in my head struggling with bots versus forms. I, I will be honest with you, man. I do not like bots. We just onboarded Drift about a couple of weeks ago. I've been avoiding it. Because I think bots are not that different than forms. In fact, I think sometimes they can be longer and more strenuous to complete because you have to wait for it to formulate its response and it kicks it out. Some companies, not us, but some companies are doing like 10 questions on a bot. And that is the worst possible. It's like taking the, the struggle of the form, putting in a bot, and like two X is long to fill out. It's just terrible. So yeah, I'm, I'm somewhere in the middle between a Chris Walker and maybe a, a staunch form guy or gal, but I think there's, it really depends. And I think it, it is up to the marketing team to figure out, you know, look at the conversion rates, look at the time on page, all the stuff that we all know is important and make a decision on a per content piece. And I, I know when I talked to Chris on here, he talked about, you know, the idea of creating hundreds of thousands of leads from a piece of content, but like who deals with that? Who deals with those leads? Like how, how did you, approach that say if you got thirty thousand leads like what do you what's the first step after you've got their email address let's say is that passed on to the sales team yeah so great question and he's right when he says your goal should not be to create a thousand leads because they won't convert that well and, and obviously with inbound you're going to deal with inefficiencies so our conversion rate on those things are pretty low too the secret I think is to have a very stringent scoring mechanism on the back end. So as that email comes in, use a discover org or a clear bit to append data to that lead that gives you better information to see if it's an ICP or ideal customer profile fit or not. So we, we don't pass off. I think it's like 70% of our leads to sales. We pass off roughly 30%. Um, so what we do is we, really try to filter for intent. And Chris and I had a podcast, I think way back when, and I challenged him on the same thing. And he's like, you got to wait for people to contact you. And I was like, you're right, but how do they contact you? And he's like, demo requests. I was like, yes, that's what you do. You literally collect the leads, you score them, you don't give them the sales, but as soon as they take some sort of an intent trigger or intent action, that's when you pass them off the sales. And I think the other thing marketers can do is we have our content libraries is somewhat extensive. So what 
I've challenged our team to do is organize it, do a content map where literally every piece of content is mapped out in a way where it's like, is this an awareness piece? Is this a consideration piece of content? Is this a decision piece of content? Does it fit this vertical? Does it fit that vertical? I mean, you have to really understand where these pieces of content fall in the decision-making journey. And then once you get to that level, obviously if they hit a pricing page, that's that's an intent action. Score that pretty highly. If they request a demo, score that pretty highly. If they look at a consideration piece of content, like a case study or a buyer's guide, score that less than the demo, but maybe a little bit higher than a crappy ebook, right? So there, there are things you can do to increase the quality and increase the conversion rates without sacrificing the inbound flow, which I think he's right. The goal shouldn't be to generate a thousand leads, but at the end of the day, I've had, this is a reoccurring theme for my, my company. These people come in and they download our content, consume our content for about a year and a half. They will literally open our emails, read our eBooks, stay up with our current events, consume, consume, consume. Like a year and a half in, two years in, I cannot tell you how many people would reach back out and they're in our nurture flow, right? They're never passed off the sales. They they will come to you and say, all right, I'm ready now. It's nuts, but it works. It's true. So like if you didn't capture that lead initially, it still may have happened, but at the same time, you wouldn't necessarily have that opportunity to nurture them to that point. So, and I'm not talking about like the 30 email nurture that's like, take a meeting with me, take a meeting with me. It's just, again, focus on content and try to minimize the sales cycles. I think I've been in that situation where I've been aware of a company for a very long time and, yep. but just never like maybe been in the right place to maybe either have the say or just the need specifically to, to use it. It could be said for Drift probably, like I know of them and like heard a lot about how great they are but just never really been at that place where it's like i need them so mm. it's so true i think that's how it works for a lot of people too right is that kind of make a mental note and say okay these are these guys so if i ever really run into that scenario if they change jobs that's the other thing is like people change jobs all the time and you know if you're top of mind for this specific niche mm-hmm. you know you'll come up in the buying journey and that's, sure. the, that's the benefit of branding i suppose it's, I don't need a marketing agency right now, but if I ever did, and then maybe I'd choose someone I follow on LinkedIn. How So you talked about like tracking people's intent and sort of if you see them go on the pricing page and that thing, that kind of thing. What do you use to track that intent, like to track those people across your website? Yeah. So we use HubSpot, Salesforce, um, a couple other tools like uh, Crazy Egg. And uh, basically HubSpot does a good job tracking like visits and drift now with chats and things like that. And we can tell what pieces of content generated chats from certain people uh, and we can make determinations on is that awareness consideration decision. HubSpot's really the main brand for us. You know, it's not the most advanced marketing automation system, but I've used the Marketos of the world, the Pardots. I think it does the job for what, it's like 90% of what they do. A lot more user-friendly, so my entire team can dive in and really add value, whereas uh, Marketo and things like that, you need kind of like power user. So yeah, marketing automation is like the, the key. That's cool. Yeah, so we use HubSpot as well, but we need to get the most out of it for sure and start tracking all these people. So when you actually, you know, pass over those leads to your sales team, what do you expect them to do? Are they just reaching out with an email? Yeah, so we have a couple different ways we deal with things on SalesLoft. So, and we have a bunch of different sources we're pulling in for these leads, right? So uh, we have an assessment on our website. We have an academy. We have eBooks. We have reports. We have blogs. I mean, you name it, we've done it. PPC. So it's important to match the source 
to the talk track from sales. So what I mean by that is like, let's give you an easy example. It's like, if this company comes in, they take that assessment, which is just a program assessment at this point. They answer those 35 questions. It spits out a customized report. Sales will get that report for that lead that they get assigned to and basically understand the whole real purpose was two, twofold for that assessment is to collect data for this report, but also skip the discovery phase of the sales process potentially, right? So if you're answering 35 questions about your experience program, I can give that to the sales team member and they now understand everything you're struggling with. They understand what you're doing well. They understand where the gaps are. They understand where our solution could potentially fit in. So instead of having that hour long discovery painful conversation that almost every SaaS company has, they can just cut right to it. They say, hey, I have your assessment here. Looks like you're struggling with these three things. And talk to me a little bit more about that. So that mm-hmm. saves time, but, but it also allows them to cater their message, not only in person, but via email. So they have specific cadences that they can tee up for these assessment leads that, you know, is calling out the pains that they've experienced or the the issues or the gaps in that assessment. They can do it at scale, which is kind of cool. Perfect. Okay. So I think I've definitely ran through a lot of things so far, but I want to return to that report. Um, You said you didn't use PPC to promote it and to get those 30,000 downloads. What did you use to promote it? What techniques? Yeah, great question. So promotion, again, it's like, it's the cliche of 20% is on content creation, 80% is promotion. So we, we did a ton, a ton, a ton of promotion. The benefit of going big on the report, like an 80 page report, is that you have just provided your marketing team with enough collateral and images and charts and snippets to sustain you for at least a year. 80 pages, uh, I think it was like over 50 charts or something like that. It's crazy. So the key is to repackage that. So kind of similar to the, the podcast strategy, right? Where you film a podcast on video, you can repackage the video, you can do the transcript and take that audio and kick it onto a podcast platform. You can transcribe it, put it on your blog. Same thing with the report. I mean, repackage that thing in as many different ways. So we did social images. We did a ton, a ton, a ton of email promotion. That is for your uptake of the information is like have something that is going out to your email base every single week about just so not just download this report, but hey, check this out. This is an interesting stat. Check out the blog, read the blog. And at the end, the CTA is to download the report or something along those lines. So it's kind of like that multifaceted funnel um, to drag them into the information. It's not just always download the C-book. That will go stale pretty damn quick. So were you breaking down bits of the report into, you know, and writing specific articles on that content? Yeah, for sure. So we actually have in the report, we did, I think it's 15 industry overview. So what we did is we took the benchmarks from every industry and then gave like the NPS score, the average retention rate, the average response rate, and then wrote a ton about the industry and what they're experiencing from the experience standpoint on the B2B side. Uh, so we did an article per industry. We did multiple articles per industry. We did entire eBooks after that, based off the industry data that we collected, we would do uh, a ton of articles on like the main, what we call the newsroom headlines, like 40% of companies don't know the retention rate. So we would spin up like, you know, five or 10 articles on that we would just keep hammering the same stuff over and over again um provides focus uh, which is great from a marketing standpoint but then um i don't think people are confused when they see customer gauge come into their inbox what they're about to get they know it's going to be valuable they know it's going to be talking about how to improve your program or take it to the next level and, and grow your accounts faster it's really what we focused on a lot of promotion on email social we did a lot of influencer outreach too and we got into forbes that way we got into a bunch of different publications like I'm forgetting a lot of them but uh, a lot of people reference this report as like 
net promoter score, benchmarks, mm -hmm. customer edge, and I would use it as kind of a, a backlink. Guest posting was big too. We would have guest posts lined up before we launched. Yeah, there was there was a lot of promotion, man. And we didn't rely on PPC because we didn't we had this if I can rant on this a little bit. So we had this secondary site that I created or I didn't create, I recreated. So my CEO and a previous marketer on the team had this site, npsbenchmarks.com, which is basically a site that just collected all public net promoter scores and put it on one spot so people could peruse like industry and, and companies. And it was doing okay, but it wasn't anything substantial. But myself and my team, when I, when I came on board, we saw the potential in this. So what we did is we rebranded it, built it up, uh, and really optimized it for SEO. So we teed it up with, we loaded like 2,000 or 2,500 shell companies. So like Apple, even though there's not a score there, it would say Apple Net Promoter Score and then a description of Apple. And then it would say, add your score. And you could click a button and somebody from Apple could add their score. But we'd also pull these, you know, organically off the web. So if somebody published a Net Promoter Score, we would put it on the site. Long story short, this worked extremely well. We were basically the number one search result for anything. Like if you searched Apple Net Promoter Score, we would be the first result. If you search yeah. Tesla net promoter score, we would be the first result. Same thing like company-wide and industry-wide. If you search telecommunications net promoter, we would be the first result. So it crushed, which was great. What was the website? It was npsbenchmarks.com. And if you go there now, it's going to redirect to Bain and Company, right? So long story short, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, Bain and Company owns the trademark for Net Promoter Score. And they also were starting to get into this Net Promoter Benchmarking thing. And in not so many words, got a little upset that we were generating a ton of traffic for NPS Benchmarks and they weren't their name wasn't on it. So they sent a cease and desist and we, we fought it for a good year. But at the end of the day, we're, we're not going to go into a legal battle with Bain and Company. So we actually ended up turning over the URL of npsbenchmarks.com to Bain. They actually own it now. So that redirects them to their site, which I think is a little bit subpar. Don't tell them I said that. But basically that site now lives on our site, customergage.com slash benchmarks. But back to the original point of telling that story, that is where we got a lot of our traction on the ebook, right? So like we put that thing all over the place on that website. Mm -hmm. So people were showing up on the site to look for net promoter score benchmarks. And then we had this crazy good piece of content on that site that's saying, hey, get your benchmarks, get your benchmarks. And I think we generated probably half the traffic and downloads from that organic site. So that was how we were able to kind of hack it and not use PPC. If we use PPC, I think it would have been you know, 2X, 3X that. But I, I just, at that point in our company's stage, we weren't ready to spend a ton of money on PPC. So my my direction that I chose, obviously, is to go the cheapest route with the most impact. And that just happened to be SEO. Yeah, it's quite a creative method of getting it out there. Yeah, I wouldn't recommend that specifically. It's funny I just said that, but managing a sub-brand that's loosely tied to your, your main brand is, is a tough pill to swallow after a while. Obviously, on that site, we had all of the downloads that they would click would go to customergage.com. All of the different articles we produced on that site were linking to customergage.com. So we did a good job like dragging that traffic from npsbenchmarks.com to customergage.com. We had a whole workflow set up on the back end with emails that would say, hey, welcome to NPS Benchmarks. And then slowly we would drag that customer gauge content, but it's a bear, man, to, to manage two brands that you have to produce content for. And what it en ended up really happening is like at some point, um, realized that a lot of the content was that was generating the bulk of the traffic was mpsbenchmarks.com, which is exciting. But, you know, as the VP of marketing, I had to take a step back and say, is this really the right thing to do? And, you know, in a weird way that that Bain & Company situation was a blessing because then it helped us refocus on our brand and generating traffic to our brand, which is what we're doing now. So overall, would you say it was a worthy investment in terms of the time you spend and the money you put into the research? 
For sure. So caveat being, we, oh, another thing I didn't mention is we promoted this thing, not just on the email, not just on social, but we did like events, like we did physical events. Mm -hmm. We did them big. So we did it for us, big for us. Sorry. We did Boston. We called it monetize, which was again, tying to that monetize, that promoter methodology we were pushing back then. And the research that was basically saying like, these programs are failing because you're not monetizing. You're not tying them to ROI and revenue. So we did a conference in Boston with like two, 300 people. Forrester spoke. We got a sales Salesforce, Microsoft, AWS, all these companies to show up and back up our research and basically say, yeah, experience matters. And that was a super compelling event. So when I say this report generated over $2 million ARR for us, it's like taking the full view of all of these different things that this content spilled into. I mean, we repositioned the company after this research report. That's crazy stuff. And that's how what really made us look at account experience. Cause like monetizing that promoter was good, but it wasn't really covering a lot of other things. Like all of these various data inputs, like website visits and support tickets. That's what made us create this account experience thing and tie it to revenue, but also get a fuller view of, of the experience on the B2B side. But when I say it produced like 2 million ARR, it was collectively the campaign as a result of this research. So it's not like I can tie everything back to the book, but if I tie the, the book with the events, with you know all the other stuff we did, it's significant, man. I mean, it, it's literally our growth lever for the last two years. So good. So definitely a worthy investment. Something that just popped into my head then, it's like a question I think we need to ask just to stop people from kind of going down the wrong route. How can we make sure that people don't waste their time doing an 80 page ebook and then it flops? You know, they've done three or four months of research and then no downloads. How do we stop that happening? Stop people wasting their time? Great question. I would say that start small. I mean, like anything in marketing, you got to test, right? So we did test, by the way. So we did a version of this in 2016. So we had our first report, which was, and if you look at it, I think I, I may have eliminated it from the internet at this point. It's so <laughs> embarrassing. It was a PowerPoint. And we did, we did 300, I think, surveys where people just filled it out. And we did a, two PowerPoints, part one and part two, NPS Benchmarks Report. And it was PowerPoints and the charts were just awful. And it wasn't co-branded. And it was like just a bare bones cut at this initial campaign. So my advice is start small until you know it's going to work. And that, that 2016 report that was just complete shit, in my opinion, I think it generated like 8,000 downloads. So again, like that was a good indication to us that there's a need for this. There's interest in it. And we actually got that idea from a blog way back when about NPS benchmarks. And it just happened to do really well for search traffic. So I was like, all right, if this blog is doing well, maybe we should do something bigger. And then, all right, well, if that report did well, we should do something bigger and co-brand it and make it look really good. So it wasn't just like, hey, we're going to do this and that's big it was a iteration throughout the entire process and that's a super important point to bring up so thank you for doing that ben it wasn't we're going to put all of our eggs into this one basket we were testing along the way starting small with a blog article and looking at maybe if i give any advice to companies listen look at your top 20 blog or blog articles and figure out which one is kind of driving unique traffic and then maybe do something bigger around that. Maybe start with an ebook and then move that ebook into a report. And then if that report does great, move it into a bigger report with co-branded stuff with like these big companies. I mean, you can, you can scale it up and not take a big risk because I think you're right to point that out. The worst thing you can do, I've seen this happen at so many companies, which is like the team completely burns out on creating the content and has no steam left to promote the damn thing. That's like the worst case scenario because you have this amazing piece of content that's just sitting there because the team's just so burnt out from like making this content amazing that nobody actually ends up seeing it. And that, that sucks. You don't want that to happen. Definitely, definitely. And great answer to that. Okay, so one more question to finish. Who are your favorite marketers to follow at the moment on LinkedIn? 
Wow, there's so many of them. I would have to say, I hate to shout this guy out because he's already blown up, but Chris Walker sent some good stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to shout out to Gaetano. I think he's he's telling it like it is. I'm also a fellow musician, so I like his little Music Monday things. There's a couple other like niche guys like uh, Udi from Gong, CMO. He's doing some really interesting stuff, not just at his personal level, but his team. I think Gong is crushing it. I think the guys at Clary are crushing it. Yeah, there's there's a lot of them, man. I mean, um, Dave, I, I'm actually part of Dave's Patreon group, so I'm getting some really good value out of Dave. I, I do. Is it worth it, that group? I've resisted um, that, but. Yeah. It's worth it. He, he throws some some knowledge out that you wouldn't get. Like he had a really good one about internal marketing today that he didn't post about on LinkedIn. If you can get your company to pay for it, I'd say do that. Every company I've worked at usually has like a, a small budget for like education. And if you meet a manager that says, no, you can't develop yourself personally and professionally with skills, I would say you're probably at the wrong place. Yeah. It's only $10 a month. I think I've seen him post about that being like, it's only $10, put it on your uh, marketing education budget. Exactly. Yeah, it's good. Dave's pretty solid, man. I think I, I am old school though. So I, I like LinkedIn. I think it's a bit of an echo chamber, as I mentioned, but I'm a, I read a ton of books. I still think that books are the way to go. I think that young marketers out there should be reading books they should be reading the, the historical ones like scientific advertising like breakthrough advertising there's just them out there that i think just have super relevant information still today seth godin is amazing too this stuff is still timeless there's there's a ton out there man i, I could go on and on and on about all that stuff honestly thank you that's great we got loads of good ones there Thanks very much. Uh, I think you've shared so much knowledge on this podcast. It's been great to have you on and, and I know that everyone listening is going to have really got a lot of value out of that. So thanks. It's also been great fun talking to you, man. It's a lot of fun, man.